Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'll be joined by New York City public advocate Jamani Williams, and he's going to talk about some new recommendations that he's put out related to how to reduce gun violence in New York City. The city is, has seen an increase in gun violence this year. It's getting a lot of attention. Folks are probably familiar with the fact that some of those numbers are up in, to, in terms of shootings and murders across the city. And public advocate Jamani Williams is going to join us to talk about some of his recommendations for how to bring down the gun violence. And we're also going to talk about another area of focus for the public advocate that relates to that, of course, and that's police reform. So the public advocate who has had police reform as a focus of his for a long time since he was in the city council, certainly, and even prior to that, I believe, uh, is going to come and join us and talk about both police reform and how he wants to see the police, but not just the police, work on the issue of gun violence in New York City. And then we'll probably get into even some additional issues related to how the city recovers from the coronavirus crisis and all of its fallout in its socioeconomic factors. We'll talk with public advocate Jamani Williams in just a few minutes. We're looking forward to having him back on the program with some new thoughts and some new discussion points. And of course, I really want to ask him, you know, pointedly about how he tries to balance his push for reform with also, of course, uh, how to make sure that communities and the city as a whole are safe. And there's a lot of criticism of folks like Public Advocate Williams for pushing too far on the police reform side. And we're going to get his reaction to that and see how he thinks the city needs to both combat the surge in gun violence and also continue to reform the police department. And on that point, I also want to mention we just published at Gotham Gazette late last night for this morning uh, a new deep dive piece on all of the police reforms that have been passed and promised over the last several weeks. It's really been a watershed period for police reformers like the public advocate and many others. And we tried to pull it all together. I think I don't think anybody's done that quite yet to say, look at all these reforms that have happened on the city and state levels and some others that have been promised by executive action or by the NYPD commissioner that, of course, need to be seen to be believed. But there's really been just an incredible amount that has moved in the last several weeks after George Floyd was killed in Minnesota. Protests erupted. And all of a sudden, uh, as the Reverend Al Sharpton actually said to our reporter, Summer Krasheed, for this story at Gotham Gazette, the dam broke. You know, there was a break in the dam that had been holding up a lot of these police reforms at the state and the city level. And of course, opinions vary on what people think of those reforms. But there's no one on any side of the equation who questions whether it's really been an immense period for police reforms being moved at both the New York State and New York City levels. But right now, I'm happy to be joined by New York City public advocate Jamani Williams. How are you, Mr. Public Advocate? Uh, a couple of, you know, rough weeks, but uh, yeah, I think we're all we're all trying to hang in there. How about yourself? Uh, doing okay. You know, definitely um, concerned for the city uh, in some of the you know ways that we're uh, going to talk about here, and some of the ways I'll talk about later in the show with a guest to talk more about the economy and jobs. Um, and then, as I was saying, I don't you, pr- you probably weren't quite on the line yet, but I was saying earlier, you know, watching the. COVID-19 numbers explode across the country is really troubling as well, both for the people going through it and, of course, for what it might mean for, for us here in New York. Um, so a lot to be concerned about as we as we chat here today. 
So why don't we start with um, what you've been focused on the most lately these last couple of weeks, as you said, uh, very challenging, very troubling weeks. Um, you have some some new recommendations about how the city should combat uh, a surge in gun violence that we're seeing. Do you want to lay out the broad strokes of those recommendations? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, these things I've been working on for quite some time. And quite frankly, they they've worked. And it's all about kind of reframing what public safety is and what public safety isn't. And anyone who thinks that law enforcement is not a part of that conversation is just wrong. And anyone who thinks that law enforcement is the only part of that conversation is also wrong. And it's about figuring out what part everyone has to play and why everyone's not at the table. I think there's some structural inequities that will take a little longer to work on, but three recommendations that I make to the mayor and the commissioner just the uh, MIP commission just last week. Um, one, kind of really reframing how we use ComStat. And, you know, it was sad to see the commission's remarks, very destructive remarks at ComStat, but it was a great example of why we need to look at that different. Right now, the police department is the only one accountable for ComStat. Commanders have to stand up in front of everyone and say the crime numbers are either up or down. What are they doing to... Uh, stop it. That's a problem. And so where are the other agencies that have to be a part of that conversation on a citywide level? What are they doing to address some of those? On a local level, where are the community organizations that also have to be accountable and should be at that conversation? It shouldn't be just left up to uh, the law enforcement because the tools that they have are not enough to solve all the problems that are addressing it. The second was a model that I know some folks will, will look at funny, but it's an advanced piece that I think can overlay on the crisis management system or cure violence that we already have. It's been peer reviewed. It's been proven to, uh, it's been proven to work in cities in Los Angeles. And it's basically uh, giving incentives to people who are most likely uh, to shot or do some shooting for making improvements uh, in things that we normally don't even think of. So whether it's fixing your resume, getting a GED, things like that, incentivizing that. And, you know, we don't mind spending money to send a bunch of cops to the community. We shouldn't mind spending the same money on things and that we know work. And lastly, it was about just asking police to do their job. And so we've heard and seen anecdotally slowdowns. And uh, the complaints that we heard just didn't quite make sense. Uh, uh, even the New York Post, of all people, were debunking uh, them trying to blame it on the bail reform, which I was surprised to see, but happy that they, they, they did that. And then they blamed it on the chokehold bill that the city council passed. I said that bill went into place last week. The slowdown is happening for two or three weeks. And so why would there be a slowdown before? And the rhetoric that we hear is rhetoric that we hear whether crime is up or crime is down. Um, and it's all about just police, police, police. And what we're saying is, we really have to reshape that and take it out so that it's public safety is a broader conversation so we can be fair to the community and fair to the police officers who want to come to work every day and um, make a difference. Uh, but to do that, we just have to really take a step back. And we missed an opportunity in this budget. Everybody was so worried about the billion that we didn't we weren't able to have a conversation about what is policing, why are police still doing things like mental health. Lastly, I do want to make it clear that the Police department was not defunded in any way, shape, or form. They ended up losing maybe $380 million. Other mm-hmm. agencies took severe cuts even more than that. And so we have to stop that rhetoric as well. 
All right. So, so let's dig in a little bit more here. So you're, you're clearly stating, you know, one thing I think that's, that's interesting. I mean, this discussion has moved so fast, um, so quickly in some ways, even though the results, as you said, weren't really borne out in the, in the budget decision, but you know, there's the defund conversation. Then there's even this, you know, abolish the police conversation. So you're not arguing for abolishing the police department. You made that clear, you know, that police is, is part of the equation, but can you say a little bit more about what you think the sort of right sizing and right um, functioning of the police is, you know, is it the police is real, you know, should really just be responding to violent crime. Is there a certain, size of the police force you think is ideal are these things that you thought about so these are the these are the questions that we need to ask and need to be answered and they need leadership that's going to be able to have that conversation as far as abolishing the police look uh, it'll be great one day if uh that was not needed so i don't mind that as a goal that we have to get to but the reality is uh for the foreseeable future um, that's not where we're going to be. And quite frankly, even in the utopia, someone is going to be responsible for law enforcement. And so we should figure out uh, what that what that looks like. And the fact of the matter is, people don't understand, we have 35,000 officers, seventh largest army in the world. Per capita, we're about six or seventh in, in the country. So how many police do we need for safety? Do we need to double that? Do we need to triple it? Should the, the police officer in front of every building? If a, or if a community is only has two choices, which is over-policing, jail, and violence, then we have a problem. And so what we should have been figuring out, okay, why are police officers responding to mental health services? Why, I mean, why are they the first responders to mental health services? That's something right away we can take away. Why are police officers responding, the first ones responding to a car accident to fill out a report? Why are they holding up barricades at parades? These are real questions that we can have. We can do a deep dive and really figure out what are the resources that we have and where they're being used. And let's redirect them. Let's reframe this conversation. In Minneapolis, many people thought that they got rid of the police department, but they didn't. They did something differently entirely. They created an office of public safety of which the police department reports to. That's a rethinking and a reexamining of public safety. Those are the questions that we should be asking. And sadly, uh, we're missing a lot of that uh, because of a lot of the screaming and yelling and the fear-mongering that happens. And I, I want to be clear, just a few months ago, another time that they've, they've uh, this slowdown type things have happened before, it just didn't have the results that they wanted because we did not see a commensurate amount of crime rise. We just happened to be in a time where crime is rising across the nation, where we're just going through a pandemic. And it's surprising to me that we believed everything in these communities would get worse, including housing, food insecurity, uh, uh, unemployment. We thought everything would get worse except gun violence. So we should have been planning for this for a while. But, you know, this has been tried before. It just didn't have the results that folks wanted. And so we're using a time in history where we should be kind of putting our heads together uh, to figure this out uh, to, sadly, do what's happening now. So it sounds, I mean, it sounds like, you know, this is the conversation that could have happened before the city budget deal, but, but is potentially a conversation that'll happen before the next one. Um, and actually what's interesting is not someone you're known to agree that much with, but governor Cuomo has basically told localities around the state to have those conversations and to sort of start from scratch in terms of reimagining what policing is like, um, in order to present plans to the state to, to get state funding for police departments. So that conversation um, 
will continue on the on the increase that you just mentioned in gun violence. What are you, you know? You seem to be attributing it there to the dislocation brought on by the pandemic and the closure of the economy, basically. But we all, we we don't really know, do we? I mean, we don't we don't really know what's at the essence of this this increase in gun violence. Or, so, or do, you, do you? Whenever whenever I it's warranted, I want to give credit. And the governor, surprisingly and sadly, not the mayor. Uh, Maybe a little bit now he's doing some, but the governor really took me by surprise by actually having that discussion. Mm-hmm. I hope he broadens it out so it's not just policing, but it's about public safety. But I hope that he means what he says and puts real resources behind it. And also, it came shortly before or after he told protesters to go home because they've won. So sometimes you have to balance that out. Um, and to the uh, the what was the sorry the the last question well, you asked? I, mean, I, was, I was sort of asking, you know, we, do we really know much of anything about oh, the causes yeah. of increasing so, gun violence? <laughs> you know, it's everybody tries to stay clean as they know what one specific thing is causing crime to rise and not. And anybody who says they know for sure, you know, I'd be wary of that. But here's what we do know: we can look. Pre-pandemic, we were at historic lows. And I remind folks when we were dealing with the abusers of stop question first, we heard the same things that were handcuffing the cops, not going to be able to do their job, crimes going to skyrocket, and it never happened. Matter of fact, we were at, as I mentioned, historic, almost unsustainable lows with crime, especially around gun violence. The areas that the cure violence and crisis management system were working had an even further drop than the rest of the city. And then the pandemic hit. And people were home for three months. And these same communities saw their family members dying or losing their jobs. And so that has an impact. Mental health services weren't there. And across the country, uh, we saw the George Floyds, we saw the Breonna Taylors. Uh, we saw a lot of these things going on. And I, I would have to say that that has to have an impact on a lot of the problems that we've seen. Gun violence was an issue, even though it was low, in these communities beforehand. And so we should have anticipated that. And many of us were trying to push this conversation because we knew, we knew it was coming, combined with the fact that, although I'll never accept it as it has to be, but in the summertime, we do see an increase in this, in this kind of violence. Mm-hmm. So pointing to any one thing might be a problem, but looking at where we were and where we are now uh, is something that we have to do. Can you say a little bit more of, of your sense of, of how this happens, where there is this massive, um, you know, the, well, you, you also mentioned, of course, the public health aspect of it and thousands of people dying and the effect that that can have on people. But, you know, we see that we see this massive job loss, uh, people out of school, all these things. But how does that in your experience and from what you know, how does that lead to an increase in gun violence? Is that where there's young people who are sort of, you know, they're, they're near and around it, but all of a sudden they're getting, not all of a sudden, but you know, when, when things like this happen, they're getting sucked into gang activity, crew activity, some of these things where if there's more structure happening, they're not getting sucked into those things or what, what, what really happens? And, you know, right off the bat, I do want to make sure that none of these things are excuses. I can't condone or excuse anyone picking up a firearm and shooting. Right. And 
not even knowing where they're shooting, killing, killing one-year-old children, killing the best and the brightest uh, teenagers as they're trying to move up. This is not an excuse, and there has to be accountability for that. But if we don't look at the root causes, we're not doing justice to the people who are dealing with this on a daily basis. And again, I would start from just look at the data. Look at the communities that don't have a gun violence problem. And look at the communities that do. And what you will see is structural inequity. And I guarantee you, any place in New York City, any place in the country, you go, more than likely, you will see high rates of unemployment. You will see educational systems that are not producing the way they should be. You'll see food insecurity. You'll see housing insecurity. All of these are stressors. And then you see people who don't have access to health care, don't have access to mental health care. And if you're dealing with all these things as a young person, and people make their parents work three, four times, uh, three, four jobs, or, or what have you, and that structural safety net that exists in other places where children mess up and they can say, oh, you know, uncle so-and-so is a fire member or something, go over there, he'll, he'll lead you in the right, the right direction. Those, say, those things are not there. Then what happens? What happens to the youthful energy that people have? Some places they may count it. Some places that there's way too many guns on the street. We have to talk about the flow of guns in the street. And it's remarkable to me that the people who always think tough on crime means more police are generally the people who are supporting more guns. And it's not about illegal guns because every illegal gun was legal at some point. So we have to deal with the supply and the demand. But all those things together, you look at those data points and you'll see gun violence. So let's try to address those data points. And I firmly believe that we'll see the violence itself change. We'll see that public safety looks a lot differently. And I'm waiting for some data from, you know, uh, some of the admin. Because what has been surprising is has, has been some of the victims itself have, have been a little older than normal from what I've seen. Which again further underscores that this might be a lot more linked to people having gone through a collective trauma in the past three or four months. Mm-hmm. What do you, you you mentioned the recent comments by um, Commissioner Dermot Shea of the police department? Um, I mean, he's basically said he basically said that uh, city leaders. He didn't name any names, but it has to be, uh, you know, the city council and the mayor basically uh, have have. And, and I think some of it attributable to state because they've railed against the bail reform, um, as you mentioned. But he basically said, you know, that, that government leaders in New York have messed the city up so badly. What do you make of what's happening with the mayor and the, and the police commissioner? And what do you think should should happen here to straighten this out? You know, I always try to make sure that my words are productive. When I speak to the commissioner, I can speak to the mayor. The conversations are generally good. In between those conversations, there are things that happen that I just don't understand. And we're not, we're much different than the conversations that we had. Those comments were um, irresponsible. They weren't constructive at all. And shouldn't be said by someone who is the commissioner of the police department, has to work with everyone. And quite frankly, it doesn't sound like someone who in what the mayor said he believed in and which is really trying to change how this thing is done. And I question if there's someone there who doesn't believe it, you know, that that's a problem. 
mm-hmm. you know, folks didn't agree with everything that uh, Commissioner O'Neill did, but there was a belief that he believed that we have to change it. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'm concerned more than anything, is there that belief there? Because if there, there isn't, then we're all just uh, trying to go up a hill with weights on against a heavy wind, and he's pushing uh, in the wrong direction. Do you think the mayor needs a new police commissioner? <laughs> Again, uh, you know, the comments I made when um, when the choice was made still stands. I think there were uh, other uh, capable talent out there that we should have looked at. Um, Again, I want to keep my comments constructive because we have a very long summer to go. I'm not happy about those comments. And if something is off, either the mayor has changed fully and made an about face uh, and is just owning that and is in a different trajectory right now, um, or, you know, and, and he's misaligned with the commissioner or vice versa. There just has to be some alignment there. And however he wants to do that, he needs to do it, and he needs to do it quickly, because we all need to be working together to get out of this um, summer we're, we're in right now, because the hottest days are probably in front of us in terms of temperature and oftentimes what that means. You're um, you're working right now on trying to reduce the increase in gun violence we've seen, trying to protect against a further increase. As you said, you know, the summer is really just getting going, and we often see increases in the summer, regardless of other circumstances that might be going on. At the same time, you're pushing for police reform. You're trying to present a vision that that matches the two. Um, But can you sort of add to that and talk a little bit about you are the only black citywide elected official. Um, Obviously, Eric Adams is the Brooklyn Borough president. He's also been, you know, become even more outspoken during these crises we've been facing. Uh, both of you together, you know, uh, have appeared at some events together, but you're, you know, a lot separately and, and talking about some different things. But can you talk a little bit about your perspective about the importance of black leadership in the city sort of taking a front and center role right now? I'll tell you what's sad is most of the people who uh, have the ability to make these decisions don't look like the communities that are most affected. And so they do well to allow those who look like, have represented, have lived in those communities to really take what's being said and begin to implement it. You know, when we have to deal with the abuse of stop question first, for a while, you know, I was one of the only voices really pushing for it um, and on several things. As uh, I was the leading elected official, when it came to finding a new way of dealing with the gun violence and um, helping put together the crisis management system um, mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of pilot programs that we did that actually worked. And they, and they worked. And if we did not try it, we would not have realized that they worked. And it's a similar thing as we came through the pandemic. The people making decisions were not listening to the folks who were on the ground and who have a better connection to these communities and these communities suffer for it. And right now, the communities are understanding that they have a right to ask for more accountability, transparency. They have a right to ask for not just police and safer streets at the same time. And we should deliver that. And very often folks will say, you know, these communities are asking for police and that is 
oftentimes not untrue. But I always go back and I say, we well, should ask them what else they're asking for, because they're asking for Kings County Hospital not to close their gynecological oncology department when the black maternal mortality rate is sky high. They're asking for uh, more teachers and resources in their schools. They're asking for healthy food and they're asking for quality, safe house, uh, affordable housing. But for some reason, we're not hearing any of those other asks. And that is infuriating. And instead of ignoring uh, black leadership, black leadership should be, should be brought more to the table and taken a lot more seriously than I think it, they are. We've got just a couple of last minutes with you, public advocate Jamani Williams, and always appreciate you joining us. Um, and it's good to, to keep having you back. Um, so la- last couple uh, questions. Um, one, just to follow lost, up on that. I lost you there for a second. Uh, oh. I, I think there's a follow by lost you for a second. I'm yeah, I'm coming. You got me now? Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. So I was just going to say, we just got the last two minutes with you and we appreciate your, your time here again today. Just a follow up on that. And then one other thing, um, we saw some really divergent opinions among black leaders in the city when it came to the city council budget vote. And we had yourself opposed to the deal that was reached. We had, for example, council member Inez Barron voting against it. Um, but then we had several black council members who defended the deal and said, uh, you know, we don't really believe in sort of a, a more radical defunding of the police or shifting away from police resources. Is there a way that you sort of reconcile that? Is how how are you thinking about sort of some of those different approaches that we've seen from black elected officials? Uh, I think I got most of it. it so one, I, I blame the mayor. The mayor presented a framework that didn't have to be, and so he present a framework that uh, I think was wrong from the beginning. What we needed is somebody who can provide leadership to have a conversation with all parties involved. And I don't believe that people were saying that they don't want to take any funding from even the black leaders who supported the budget. By the way, I think they were working with what they were presented. I don't think it was a difference of we don't want to take any resources away. Uh, There were just some people who didn't agree with the bill in it and didn't agree with the way they were trying to be done. But if you had somebody in there that can get in there and really have a conversation, there would have been a lot more alignment. And so me presenting what I presented with the powers that we have in the charter was some of that alignment. It was saying, okay, if we are, we are, and everybody would agree with this, that we have to reframe the public safety debate. We also can't only send the police department. And I bet you, if you had said, look, if we are going to have a hiring freeze, if we are going to tell the city of New York, we cannot keep your cancer department open, we can't hire any new doctors, any new nurses, we can't hire any new teachers, any new social workers, the only thing that we can hire is a thousand new police officers, I bet you would have had a lot of alignment and people saying, you know what, let's either hire or not hire, but let's figure out some equity. Let's figure out if we can get more than just half of the summer youth jobs. And so the divisions that were there didn't have to be. And I put a lot of that on the mayor who presented a framework uh, that also did not have to be. And we spent a lot of time with that billing instead of really making a deep dive like the ones we just discussed about the police resources that we have, how they're being used, how they can be um, redeployed, and what else we need in those communities. Last question, then uh, let you go. Um, 
we've we've had this exchange several times, but not in a while. And and uh, given that the New York Times ran a story about this a few weeks ago, that there's some some people clamoring for you to break your uh, repeated pledge of sorts about running for for mayor. Have you given any new thought about the possibility of running for mayor in next year's election? I'm just always honored that somebody's even mentioned my name with that. Like that's still mind boggling to me uh, that this 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 dude from Brooklyn is being mentioned uh, like that, public school baby. Uh, but you know, I really uh, ask the folks to do this job. I think I'm doing a, a decent job, and my plan is to ask them uh, to do uh, that job again. And then it's mm-hmm. important to have someone who's really going to push this forward uh, and hold everybody accountable um, during this time. So right now, my plan is. Uh, to just be running for re-election, focusing on what I'm focusing on now. But I also don't believe my own press releases, and I do know there's a lot of folks who probably uh, don't want me to run either. <laughs> so um, it's great to hear the folks uh, that definitely vote for me. There's probably a couple that wouldn't, though. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, well, you'll keep us posted if you have any uh, different thoughts on that. Uh, I certainly will. All right. Public Advocate Jemani Williams, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me and this discussion and discussions you have on a regular basis. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you.